What's up, everybody? Jose Nino here, your fantastic host at El Nino Speaks. Today, I have the great pleasure of chatting with one of the more unique voices in the space of geopolitics. George Samueli is the Senior Research Fellow at the Global Policy Institute of the London Metropolitan University. His work is extensive. You can find it anywhere from like Tacky's Magazine, Antiwar.com, Counterpunch. And he's also made appearances on Russia Today and Press TV. And on top of that, he has authored Bombs for Peace, NATO's Humanitarian War on Yugoslavia, which was published in 2014. And recently, George has joined Russia Today's Peter Lavelle and hosting The Gaggle, a political commentary show that challenges popular narratives that you'll find in the corporate press. That's quite a resume you've got there, George. How are things going these days? Oh, pretty good. I'm very pleased to be here with you and um, looking forward to our conversation. For sure, man. Yeah, you're pretty well-versed in international affairs and geopolitics, especially from like a very contrarian perspective, because you see a lot of bland neoconservative and neoliberal takes these days on those issues. How did you originally get into the field of geopolitics? Well, I was a, um, a writer and a uh, journalist for, for many years, and um, I was um, you know, adhered to most of the um, neocon narratives. I mean, during the Cold War, I really didn't doubt most of the central tenets of uh, neoconservatism. Uh, I thought communism was a bad thing, Soviet Union was uh, pretty awful. And that's understandable because, you know, I, originally I was born um, in communist Hungary and uh, I left uh, communist Hungary as a small boy with my parents. And so we, uh, we defected and, um, you know, became, I became a, a British citizen. I grew up in the United Kingdom. And so that naturally I was anti-communist and uh, it was you know, it was axiomatic that uh, the West is the good guys and the, uh, the communists, particularly the Soviet Union, were the bad guys. Things changed upon the end of the Cold War because suddenly the, that kind of um, Manichean view of the world, which would, you would expect to come to an end, with the uh, end of the Cold War, nonetheless uh, continued. Apparently, there were all sorts of evil monsters that uh, the United States and NATO and the West in general had to destroy. And I found this very, very puzzling because I always thought that, uh, well, it was the communists were the bad guys and then the, the Soviet Union was bad. But suddenly, uh, we were told that there were all sorts of other things uh, that were bad, and that therefore we needed uh, a very powerful, uh, all-embracing United States and NATO to assert themselves all over the world and bring everyone to heel. And this this really troubled me, and it particularly it, it troubled me when this was applied against uh, Yugoslavia. And that happened almost immediately upon the end of the uh, Cold War, when suddenly this. Uh, state of Yugoslavia, the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, that throughout the Cold War years had always been held up as an example of um, Third Way, part of the, of the non-aligned movement. You know, they, they weren't communists, they weren't capitalists, 
They pursued an independent foreign policy. Um, they had been brave enough to uh, defy Stalin. They'd been brave enough actually even to defy uh, the Soviet Union under Khrushchev and Brezhnev. And so, you know, they'd received a lot of aid um, from uh, the United States. They were building up this uh, alternative to the communist world. And of course, also, you know, people spoke very admiringly about its, um, you know, economic systems with its um, decentralization and its worker management, and, and then the, its culture. You know, it had its, um, ma- you know, major filmmakers like Dushan Makaveyev, You know, who was a big cult figure. You know, if you were in the West, everyone wanted to see uh, Makaveyev's movies like W.R. Mistress of the Orgasm, um, and then suddenly. It, you had this, uh, this Western uh, propaganda system turned against them. It said that this is an absolute horrible, monstrous uh, place that we must uh, destroy. And so we must actually ensure the dissolution of this common state of Yugoslavia. And indeed, the West did destroy it. And then uh, it went to this uh, demonization of uh, one nation, the, the leading nation of Yugoslavia which was the, the Serbs. Uh, and again, the Serbs always been greatly admired. They were admired in World War One. They were admired in uh, World War Two. And the, suddenly we were told that these were absolute uh, barbarian savages with no understanding of civilization, freedom, uh, human dignity, and that the resources of the West must be directed against them. Tiny country, tiny, brave Christian people I mean, the people themselves are not tiny. They're actually rather big. But, um, you know, it was a tiny nation. But suddenly they became the embodiment of evil. And that's when I really began to understand that the the Western propaganda system is a very dangerous thing. And we have to really keep an eye on it. And, of course, what, what does the propaganda system serve? It serves aggression, aggression and uh, expansion and, uh, and that really, you know, this is something we really need to do uh, something about. So I came to it very in a very different way from you know, the people who were on the left and who always denounced American imperialism and, and so on and so forth. But to me, it, you know, you could see that all of the talk that somehow the, the Cold War and the, the, the whole mobilization, the vast uh, military expenditures of the Cold War was all about fighting communism. And then suddenly it turned out, no, it's really all about ensuring Western hegemony because communism is gone, and yet uh, the resources devoted to uh, the military have remained exactly the same. That's how I've always viewed it as well. I came into a lot of international relations, basically like through like the Ron Paul run in 2007. I saw a lot of his videos, especially his like debates mm-hmm. and when I, with like Rudy Giuliani, and then I just fell down that rabbit hole. But I was always skeptical of a lot of like the narratives that people would use as cover. So this brings me to another point of your book for like Bombs for Peace. What would you say Mm -hmm. the main thesis of that book is? Is it like similar to what you said that the war on Yugoslavia was basically a form of the U.S. trying to flex its hegemony in that area of the world? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, what had happened is that I think the Western powers, uh, the moment the Cold War was over, saw in Yugoslavia a um, possible model of socialism that they wanted to stamp out right away. 
because it really wasn't part of the Soviet bloc, it hadn't really adopted the uh, Soviet form of communism. Um, I think the Western powers were very concerned that it might uh, appeal as an alternative model to the former uh, members of the Warsaw Pact that the NATO, NATO and the Western powers were very at that moment very busy um, inflicting that kind of neoliberal uh, order upon. And they thought, hey, that this might be a rather attractive alternative model. You know, we, you know they didn't want everything privatized and uh, taken over by uh, the, the big um, uh, Western com uh, corporations. So they were very anxious to uh, get rid of that. And I think they also felt that um, uh, Yugoslavia, um, the leading nation of which was Serbia, might be a kind of Russian bridgehead in Europe, and they wanted to push Russia out of uh, Europe uh, altogether. And they, they, they thought this was the golden opportunity. The Soviet Union had collapsed. The Warsaw Pact was no more. And that this was a historic opportunity really to push Russia and Russian influence out of uh, Europe once and for all. And, uh, and as long as Yugoslavia existed, then Russia would always have a, um, a certain hegemony um, you know, or, or at least a certain sway over some countries uh, in Europe. Um, <clears throat> so they, they seized on Yugoslavia and immediately pushed for um, its breakup. It was quite extraordinary, the speed with which they moved. Uh, you had um, the first three elections that take place in Yugoslavia in the individual republics in 1990. And within months, uh, they're already pushing for the breakup of the country. Uh, you, know, you think that there may be other things, other priorities. No, no, no. Their main priority was the breakup of Yugoslavia. And so they moved very quickly, Croatia, Slovenia. They pushed for uh, secession already in June 1991. Germany, in no time at all, said it was intended to recognize their independence. But, you know, the rest of the Europeans and the Americans were a little hesitant. The United Nations Secretary General, Perez de Cuella, was warned against it. But nonetheless, the Germans uh, pushed ahead. They did it in December uh, 1991. They recognized uh, the independence of Croatia. And then they bullied the rest of Europe into following suit. And then uh, once the Europeans and then the Americans got in on the act and the Americans who saw Croatia and Slovenia kind of moving into the German camp, you know, they suddenly seized on Bosnia as being a kind of an, uh, the American client state. They saw in them particularly the uh, Bosnian Muslims who, had, who enjoyed the plurality within um, the Bosnia-Herzegovina as a kind of good Muslims that the uh, uh, that, that would serve a Western interest. You know, the West is always looking for the good Muslims that they could yeah, use. Chechnya, Syria, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, particularly in Turkey. I mean, that was, I mean, Turkey, you know, under Erdogan, I mean, I don't think anyone calls them a good Muslim anymore, but Turkey was a kind of the, the exemplar of the sort of the good Muslim. They can use them particularly against the Russians. And again, you know, you had, you had that example like the, uh, the Afghan Mujahideen, they regarded them as a good Muslim. Oh, yeah, have to keep many away. such cases. Yeah, they, it's not that they were secular or that they were civilized. That they, they, what they meant, they were good Muslims in that they could be useful in uh, directing them against um, other countries. So, like, mm -hmm. particularly against Russia. So, like, the Chechens were good Muslims. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the, the Kosovo Albanians 
uh, good Muslims, the Bosnian Muslims, good Muslims, they can use them against them, uh, their geopolitical foes. So that's why the Americans got in on this. They said, okay, well, you know, we're going to press ahead for um, the independence of Bosnia and Herzegovina. But there was a real problem there because the, only the Muslims wanted the uh, independence. They, the Bosnian Croats also wanted um, in, independence, but their view was not that they wanted to stay within uh, Bosnia. They wanted to uh, use independence. That would be the first step. And then the uh, Croatian part of uh, Bosnia would then join uh, the Croatian, independent Croatian state proper. So, but, but in any case, the problem was that you know, because Bosnia was a state of um, three uh, nations, with the three, the three constitutive nations, I mean, you know, the, whether these countries had a particular kind of uh, constitution, which is, there, was, there wasn't a kind of a Bosnian people, you had constituent nations. A constituent nation means that you can't make any constitutional decisions without the approval of a constituent nation. Um, so, so, for instance, uh, in, in Croatia, you had the Serbs and the Croats were constituent nations, but you know, once the um, the nationalists, the, Cro you know, the Croatian nationalists won the election of 1990, they immediately removed the Serbs as a constituent nation from the Croatian constitution. And um, but but in the case of, of Bosnia Herzegovina, they didn't remove them; they just simply ignored it. And the uh, the Western powers just said, "Fine, we'll just go by a simple kind of majority." You know, we have two thirds of uh, the Bosnians have voted for. Independence, and we're going to we're going to recognize it as independent, even though the Serbs, who were, as I say, a constituent nation of Bosnia Herzegovina, had uh, made clear that they would never agree to, uh, you know, a, a, an independent state of, uh, of Bosnia. So, you know, they, you know, that once you recognize it, essentially you paved the way for a civil war. And in the, in the, I mean, in the case of the Serbs. Of Bosnia, I mean, their initial uh, desire was to stay within Yugoslavia. Then they um, said, "All right, we'll accept an independent Bosnia, but only under the condition that Bosnia is kind of essentially broken up into independent cantons, you know, something along the sort of Swiss model." And and it seemed that uh, as if that agreement was on the cards. That was a so-called Kutiyero plan in 1992. And then the Americans stepped in and told um, the Bosnian Muslim leader, Izzet Begovic, why sign this agreement? I mean, you don't need to do it. And Izzet Begovic would agree to this because you know, he didn't really want to agree to it because Izzet Begovic wanted essentially a unitary centralized state of Bosnia. And he had the American backing in that. And that's it. And that guaranteed the war because the Serbs were never going to accept living in a centralized state of Bosnia where they would be essentially minority and under the thumb of the, um, the Muslims. So uh, that's it. That, that they, they, the Western powers had guaranteed a war and you know, they created the conditions for a war and rather than accept responsibility for these foolish decisions like rushing in to recognize the independence, they just chose to blame everything on the terrible Serbs. So it was all the horrible Serbs. You know, they didn't realize what good people we are. Yeah, Slobodan Milosevic, bad. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and that's it. So, and so again, the media were always on hand to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are these are horrible people. 
but without ever trying to understand the decisions, the reckless decisions that guaranteed war. And uh, you know, instead, just like you know, let's let's just blame somebody else for our uh, stupidity. And you know, you know, we've seen the same sequence of events subsequently in the case of uh, Russia. I mean, you, you know, you pursue you pursue certain policies, but rather than accept that these policies were always going to lead to disaster, and that many people had warned that these policies uh, that you've been pursuing towards Russia are going to lead eventually to disaster. Well, instead of accepting that, you just say, oh, no, no, it's all the terrible Russians, and in particular, it's all the terrible Putin. So, you know, that, yes, that, you know, but yeah. the model for <laughs> was the uh, was was the intervention in Yugoslavia. Yeah, this I, I think this is a great segue, man. For example, like we have like Ukraine, the whole Ukraine-Russia conflict, like still in the news. Like to me, this is just like a frozen conflict that the West totally bungled Mm -hmm. by trying to incorporate Ukraine into the EU and NATO security architecture, Mm -hmm. which basically kicked off the entire Maidan crisis of 2014. It's just like a total mess all around. And I don't buy like the corporate press narrative that this is some revanchist effort by Russia to just like bring back the Soviet Union. But anyways, with Crimea now under Russian control and the situation in eastern Ukraine still up in the air, where do you see the Russo-Ukrainian crisis going? Well, uh, I mean, you, you, you summarized the, uh, the situation well, because what had happened uh, you had the Soviet Union dissolve, and then um, you had the, the Warsaw Pact dissolve. And of course, then the West, contrary uh, to the promises made to Russia, then moved in to scoop up all of um, uh, the Soviet Union's um, allies uh, that had been in the Warsaw Pact and scooped them up into NATO. Um, and then they kind of moved and, start, and they scooped up um, the three Baltic states. Um, within NATO, and keep in mind, I mean, you know, a country like Estonia is really very, very close uh, to uh, Russia, and so therefore that's a, a NATO state. And then even that wasn't um, enough. They moved uh, and declared in 2008 that Ukraine and Georgia would become members of NATO. And incidentally, that also isn't enough because. Um, uh, the intent is to go much further. The intent is, of course, to have uh, Moldova uh, within NATO and then on into um, the Caucasus, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and then and then on into Central Asia and to the Far East, you know, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, all of that. The plan is to have all of these uh, former republics of the USSR within NATO. Now, the Russians can see this and essentially they are being encircled completely encircled by NATO. And NATO is, you know, wants to present itself uh, in the media as if it's just simply a kind of a supper club. You know, oh, well, we're being very nice. We're just inviting people to our supper club. <laughs> defensive alliance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It calls itself a defensive alliance. <laughs> but in fact, it's, a, it's very, very strange for a defensive alliance to be expanding and moving uh, further and further eastward. Remember, it's called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So um, what exactly is Georgia doing? You know, because Georgia is <laughs> NATO membership. I mean, Georgia is nowhere near the North Atlantic. Um, <laughs> yeah. So 
But so it's a military alliance. It's an ever expansive military alliance. And of course, it's a very aggressive military alliance. I mean, first of all, it has waged aggressive wars. We've waged the aggressive war in Yugoslavia, waged an aggressive war uh, in Libya. And uh, the level of its rhetoric um, against Russia would, would lead one to conclude that it is actually very, very hostile to Russia. So basically, Russia is being surrounded by a hostile military alliance. And, uh, and naturally, the Russians feel very angry because it's essentially a major geopolitical uh, shift against them. I mean, they're, they're, big, they're going to be they're surrounded and become a very insignificant uh, country and indeed vulnerable to attacks within Russia proper. In other words, um, once they've got, uh, they're in Georgia, then you know, lo and behold, we're going to suddenly have um, uprisings in um, the Central Asian parts of Russia, whether it's um, uh, in Chechnya again, or Dagestan, or Tatarstan, and all this something. You know, suddenly we're going to find uh, all, all kinds of um, strange guerrilla movements popping up. They're going to be absolutely sure that NATO is there. They're going to be sponsoring all kinds of irredentist movements in Russia proper. And then again, it's exactly Russia will just be pushed out of Central Asia altogether. That's the plan. That 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 is essentially, you know, it's, it's not been articulated um, because NATO wouldn't wouldn't dare articulate something anything like that. But the Russians can see that this is the fate that is uh, being planned for for them. So they now put their foot down and said that um, we are, that now we are strong enough to resist this. We were complaining and complaining during the 1990s um, about what you were doing, uh, but you didn't listen to us because ultimately, uh, as far as the, the, the Western powers were concerned, I said, look, Russia's too weak. Russia doesn't have um, power, the wherewithal to resist what we're doing. So let them complain. I mean, it's like, we're not, we're not interested. Um, you know, Russia uh, may be, you know, legally the successor state of the Soviet Union, but it's half the size of the Soviet Union. It's lost all of the um, uh, non-Russian republic. So therefore, we aren't going to show Russia the same respect that we show to the Soviet Union. Um, so, um, you know, we, when they were accorded equal status uh, to the United States. So Russians can complain and complain, but we're not going to listen. And not only that, we're going to move in and scoop up all of the uh, non-Russian republics of the uh, former USSR, and there's nothing Russia can do about it. And so this was basically the the, the Western line. And, and you know, and, you know, whenever they said, "Well, you know, what about all these uh, promises that um, were made to Gorbachev?" and they said, "Well, you know, either they say, well, we didn't actually make any promises uh, to Gorbachev, uh, but in any case, even if we did make promises, there was nothing in writing." Um, and even if there were something in writing, there's nothing really much you can do about it. So <laughs> that that's basically been the uh, the Western position, and uh, and there really wasn't very much that Russia could do about it. I mean, you know, you could complain and complain, um, but if you don't have the strength to uh, alter the circumstances, then you know, you know, you're just getting boring. But now, I think Russia sees that he does have a basis. Which you could complain and take unilateral action if necessary against Western powers, and, and I think that's why 
they, they presented these two, uh, I guess, drafts of treaties, one to the United States, one to NATO, and said this is uh, our desired mutual security uh, agreement, a kind of uh, revamped uh, Helsinki Final Act of 1975, in which um, no one's security comes at the expense of anyone else. Well, Russians were not surprised to find that uh, you know the Western powers, of course, dismissed it out of hand. But by dismissing it out of hand, uh, they have essentially then you know the, the created the circumstances in which Russia would just say, look. We told you what our security concerns are. You you don't take them seriously. You're not interested in this. Therefore, we will act in order to um, uh, when we feel that uh, you know we, we face an existential threat. When do we face an existential threat in Ukraine? We face an existential threat. Whether it's um, Kiev trying to um, mount an offensive military offensive against the Donbass, against the, uh, the Russians, many of them are, are Russians, Russian, certainly Russian-speaking, but you know, also uh, ethnically Russian. If you try to do that, or if uh, NATO starts putting in some serious heavy military hardware into um, Ukraine, you know, heavy artillery, missiles, um, we will act unilaterally and bring that to an end. We're not going to allow Ukraine to be turned into kind of a, uh, a battleship carrier uh, armed with the latest American weapons uh, against us. And, uh, and then, you know, essentially Russians say, well, you've been warned. And that, you know, that we could take any action um, when we choose, much as, and this is something the Russians emphasize, much as President Kennedy in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis said, okay, these missiles that are in... Um, Cuba, um, either you, the Russians, take them out, or we will. And it has to be done right away. Um, now, you know, the Russians could have argued and said, well, hey, I mean, Cuba has a, you know, has a perfect right to sign security treaties with whomever it wants, which is what NATO is saying. Uh, they're saying, hey, you know, anyone can join NATO. It's up to them. You know, you know Russia has no say, you know. Stay the hell out of this, you know, bar out. You know, you, you don't have any right to tell um, other countries, um, you know, what military alliance they join. Um, so, you know, R- Russia could have said that, hey, Cuba, Cuba wants to sign an agreement with us that's got entirely within the sovereign jurisdiction of uh, Cuba. And if Cuba wants to uh, base uh, missiles, defensive missiles, there's always defense, defensive missiles, and Cuba, uh, then Cuba has a right to do so. You know, Russians could have made that argument. They didn't, because they knew that the Americans weren't going to listen uh, to these arguments. Um, They just weren't interested. Geopolitics 101. Yeah, but something similar is happening now, which is that, okay, you know, if Cuban missile prices in reverse, as Peter Lavelle said it. Yeah, exactly. That's it, exactly. Uh, You know, that if you want to go make these... um, silly legalistic um, arguments, but go right ahead. No one's listening. And, and so I think that's right. But oh, well, every, every country has a, a right to, uh, you know, to, to join a military alliance. Well, it's a, it's a stupid thing to say, because, of course, you don't have a right to join any military alliance you want. You can't just hit, join a military alliance uh, that, and not take into consideration the views of your neighbors. Because if your neighbors feel that this military alliance is a direct threat to them, then 
your your freedom is circumscribed. That's the way the world works. That's why the Helsinki Final Act and then the Charter of Paris, they all say the same thing, which is security is indivisible, meaning that um, can't insist on your security at the expense of someone else's security. But of course, NATO doesn't want to entertain that. But in doing so, of course, NATO is creating a very dangerous situation for itself and a dangerous situation for uh, you know the people, the nations that are within NATO, who I think don't really realize how serious the situation is and how foolishly NATO has behaved in this continued um, expansion. Yeah, this is this entire NATO drama is just, just shows how deranged the geopolitical outlook of the U.S. is because let's like be honest, like imagine if China and Russia entered like a military pact with like Mexico or any uh-huh. of the Caribbean states. Yeah. Washington would go nuts like yep. for good reasons, because this is like traditional American sphere of influence. But uh-huh. This whole end of history type of mindset that the U.S. has had, like since the end of the Cold War, has just totally made it like take leave of its senses when it comes to basic geopolitics. Once like a state becomes strong enough, it will start to assert its authority within its backyard. And I consider like the Georgia intervention by Russia as well as one of like the turning points in geopolitics in the post. Cold War era where like you had like a reconstituted Russia being able to use like the monopoly of force to settle a dispute within its sphere of influence. And this also goes to another point, which I think is a turning point because uh, the recent developments in Kazakhstan are pretty interesting because you kind of saw a typical protest kickoff, which may have had like legitimate grievances at first, but then like right. you had a lot of very weird coordinated insurrection-like actions take place that definitely do not look organic when we peel back the onion. You definitely saw some external actors involved. What do you make of the recent developments in Kazakhstan and their overall impact on geopolitics in Central Asia? The exact details, I think, are still a little murky. Um, there's no question that there was some kind of a um, an attempt at a color revolution in Kazakhstan because, um, uh, you know, yes, there were economic uh, problems, there were grievances, uh, the um, uh, lifting the uh, cap on uh, fuel prices. Uh, you know, that's always a bad idea. But what was very suspicious about it was the um, the quick resort to violence? Um, you know why 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 the violence? And then the violence also seemed very well organized. Um, the targets of the violence was very definitive. So you know they went for the airports, uh, they went for government buildings. So it, it looked like it had been planned uh, in advance. Um, and so it, it did look again very much like they wanted a regime change operation in Kazakhstan. Of course, Kazakhstan uh, is a very big deal for Russia. I mean, it was, uh, Russia and Kazakhstan share an um, enormous border. It was I think, 5,000 kilometers, some, some, some huge, um, very, very big border. Um, you know, Russia and Kazakhstan have actually had pretty good relations. It has a very substantial uh, Russian population, about 20% 
is uh, Russian. Kazakhstan's one of the um, uh, few uh, former republics of the USSR that still retains Russian as an official language. Uh, and of course, Russia, uh, Kazakhstan is resource rich. I mean, it's, um, uh, it's enormous oil and gas reserves. It's um, lots of um, uh, pre- precious metals or rare earths, uh, has uranium mines, big agriculture. So uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a big prize. And it shares also a, bo- uh, a very a substantial border with uh, China. And so it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, geopolitical interest there. And, um, you know, in recent years, and here you will see a familiar pattern, relations between uh, Kazakhs and Russians, which had traditionally been good, um, started deteriorating. There's been a kind of an ethnic um, Kazakh nationalism that has been growing. It's been directed at, against the Russians. And I think the Russian population has been gradually declining because I think many Russians felt uh, you know, the atmosphere in Kazakhstan not very attractive, and they've been moving back toward Russia. And, uh, and, and you know, there's some jihadi elements within Kazakhstan. And we saw some of this also in, in these um, the recent disturbances with stories about uh, police officers who've had their heads cut off. So that already sounds like what jihad is. And if there are, you know, <laughs> like jihadis among yeah. the Kazakhs. And these jihadis are a pain in the neck for China because, again, you know, with, you know, with Xinjiang. Uh, Uyghurs, you know, yeah. Like, Exactly. Yeah. So there is that element to it. So we have, so clearly we have well-organized violence. We also have clearly jihadi elements. Um, and I'm sure in no time, had it gone on, we'd have seen real serious manifestations of um, anti-Russian uh, racist uh, pogroms and so on. Um, I think Russia moved very quickly. And, the, and in fact, all of the members of the a collective security treaty organization moved very quickly. Um, and, you know, so they all felt that this is a scenario that we don't want in our country. So, you know, Armenia is the current president of the CSDO, uh, you know, in- immediately went into action. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Belarus, Tajikistan, you know, they, they all agreed that the uh, force should be sent to Kazakhstan. And um, it was noticeable that clearly the military wasn't doing anything. I mean, they, you know, whether they'd gone over to the side of the color revolution, where they were in on it, the security forces were in on it. I think that's what I, that's what I mean. It was a little murky. But the arrival of the CSTO stabilized the situation. I think then the, the demoralization that would have taken place among the um, military uh, was arrested. And once the, the CSTO moved in, they secured the airports, they secured government buildings, they secured any power plants and so on. Then they could leave the, um, the restoration of public order to the local forces. But I think that was, uh, that was the major uh, step was to uh, restore morale to the, um, to the local security forces. Otherwise, I think it would have, it, Kazakhstan would have just collapsed without that intervention. And it could well have been a very, very serious situation. The way Russia handled that and like the CSTO was pretty impeccable. And it, I think it's like a turning point, too, because China had some pretty strong statements about that entire incident. It, it does show that Eurasia 
is clearly the dragon bears territory, if you will. That that's like the area that they're they're going to make sure mm-hmm. will not be subject to any type of Western trickery mm-hmm. through these color revolutions or through the use of like, for example, their once reliable lapdog in Turkey, but mm-hmm. now that's kind of changed too, as you mentioned before, because Erdogan has really gone off script. But like I remember in the past. China would blame Turkey mm-hmm. for causing trouble in Xinjiang by yep. the way that Turkey occasionally does its pan-Turkic pivot yes. um, at times. But it's changed a lot now. And I just think that this is another sign the U.S. and the really like the, the, the American Anglo like Imperium is like losing influence in this, this area of the world. And it's definitely making... Washington and London have a lot of people pull their hair out because of it. But it's a good thing because anything these actors touch just goes to crap. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's right. And I think that um, but it reminds the Russians as to how dangerous and threatening this situation is because the, the Western powers are just unremitting. I mean, it's Kazakhstan one day, Ukraine another day, Georgia, uh, Kyrgyzstan. It it's, goes on all the time, and it's, and it's always directed toward one goal, which is to grab them, remove Russian influence, and to uh, scoop them up for the kind of NATO neoliberal uh, order. Uh, and that's why the Russians really need to be uh, vigilant. And, uh, and, and I think this was a major uh, triumph for the uh, CSTO, because it moved very quickly. It was, uh, I mean, obviously Russia is the leading force within it, but all the members of the CSDO were in uh, complete agreement. And as you say, China also was very happy with that. I mean, China obviously is not in the CSDO, but is clearly uh, very happy about uh, stabilizing the situation. And uh, But it just reminds the Russians of just how, Dangerous situation. I mean, they, they know so this. You know, this is Kazakhstan, um, but what about Ukraine? Because Ukraine was was really uh, pushed by the Western powers. I mean, so, you know, from Western intelligence services, the Western non governmental organizations, uh, Western corporations, an awful lot of money was poured into Ukraine um, with the sole intention of using it as a battering ram against Russia, just to give Russia uh, headaches, push Russia out of Europe, uh, diminish it completely geographically, politically, you know, militarily. So, um, you know, that, that, you know that, that just reminds uh, the Russians of how uh, perilous the situation is and how it is, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. I mean, so you get discussions. I was in a discussion earlier uh, Today, I think it was on Crosstalk, and um, and there was a person there saying, "Well, you know that uh, you know, yes, Ukraine was promised um, NATO membership in 2008, but you know, nothing much has happened um, in the past 13 years. It's unlikely that this is ever going to happen." Well, you know, it, it isn't. First of all, it isn't true that nothing much has happened. There's been a coup in uh, in Ukraine, a, uh, a government that wasn't pro-Russian. Yanukovych was not pro-Russian, um, but he did have support among the, um, uh, the the Russian nationals in the southeast of the country. They, you know, they was they're, they're their man. 
Um, but he was he was basically a kind of leader who wanted to maintain uh, you know the the balance of Ukraine, you know, balancing the West and the East. Um, but he was overthrown because uh, again, you know, the, the people in the West, you know, some of whom were you know just rabidly Russophobic, uh, if not downright uh, neo-Nazi, plus NATO. Uh, decided they just were, were going to crush uh, the people in the southeast, where they make their voices insignificant, and Ukraine was going to be taken lock, stock, and barrel into the western camp. And you know they didn't want any more of this, you know, foot in both camps type of approach that Viktor Yanukovych had. So that was that was uh, Ukraine, you know, that was the the, the coup for that. Um, but the way the West works is that it is unremitting. So just because they say, okay, well, we, when Ukraine uh, cannot uh, join uh, NATO today, or maybe not even tomorrow, maybe not even next week, but the pressure is going to continue. They're not going to give up on this. That's the way uh, the Americans play it. They're not going to give up on this. Uh, it's there now. It's written in the, uh, the Bucharest Declaration. Ukraine and uh, Georgia will become members of NATO, and they're going to seek to implement it. And the only reason it hasn't been implemented is that Russia continues to resist. Uh, but the idea of just simply uh, complacently saying, oh, well, it's not a member of NATO. It's not very unlikely ever to be a member of NATO. Well, yes, as long as Russia continues to resist. Um, but if for one moment, if, you know, after Putin, you know, some very ineffectual leader uh, comes to power, which is always possible, you know, you know history is a very... Um, uh, unpredictable business. I mean, who would have predicted that some, somebody like Boris Yeltsin would come to power in Russia? Uh, then boom, you know, Ukraine will uh, <laughs> yeah. NATO right away. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because Putin originally was kind of viewed positively by <laughs> the West, but then when he started going off script, yes. that's when the typical like really low IQ Russia phobia mm -hmm. kicked off. And yes. once uh, like Russia started acting like a rational geopolitical actor, the entire end of history crowd just lost its mind. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. Now, I, I always doubted that Putin would be particularly, um, uh, you know, in the, in, in the kind of neoliberal um, uh, pro-Western camp, because I, I think that he was brought to power by the military and uh, security apparatus of Russia because they had realized that um, Russia had become very, very weak. You know, the, the, uh, the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia in 1999 highlighted just how weak Russia had become. Remember, Russia had gone to war in 1914 on behalf of Serbia. I mean, it was, it, it was strong enough then to go against uh, Austria-Hungary, and even to defy Germany uh, in 1914. Now, it was uh, little Serbia being thumped uh, over the head by NATO, and Russia was unable to do anything. The NATO didn't even bother to consult Russia. It just went ahead and bombed you know, Russia's little brother, Russia's traditional little brother in the Balkans. And, and I think the military and security people in Moscow realized that we are now really weak, so weak, uh, that you know, we're gonna, we ourselves are going to be picked off within the next year or two. What they did to Serbia, they're going to do to us very quickly. And I think then they removed Yeltsin uh, within a few months of that bombing, 
and they brought in Putin. And you know, as soon as I saw him, I thought, well, you know, they, there's a reason why they picked this um, this this kind of um, kind of a tough looking, very young man. Um, I mean, they thought that, that he's going to be a much firmer uh, hand uh, there. Now, you're you're right that Putin has sought uh, good relations with the West. I mean, he did want particularly Germany. I mean, he's got you know links to Germany. He spent time in Germany. He's a fluent German speaker, and um, and he did look for German investment, German technical know-how as a way of you know helping uh, Russia develop economically. I mean, that you know I think it's a this is this has always been uh, Putin's agenda somehow to ensure that Russia starts punching its weight as an economic power. There's really no reason why an educated, uh, intelligent people like the Russians with, their, um, with, with all their natural resources and their um, you know, agriculture and so on, that, that that country should not be the equal of um, uh, Japan and Germany. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's always been Putin's agenda. And, and Germany... Was uh, was play, was going to, was to play a key part in uh, all of this. So he has sought good relations with the West. And again, remember, after the 9/11 terrorist attacks, he was one of the first to uh, offer uh, his uh, help yep. uh, to the United States because you know, again, we have our common enemy, the jihadis. But none of uh, Putin's entreaties uh, or none of uh, Putin's um, calls for cooperation were ever reciprocated by um, uh, the United States and the Western powers. I mean, how did the, uh, the Bush administration uh, repay Putin's uh, aid uh, in, in going after Afghanistan in 9-11? Well, the <laughs> United States withdrew from the ABM treaty. Very big deal um, for, uh, for Russia. Russia still feels very bitter about that withdrawal from the ABM treaty. They bring it up all the time. And what else did they do? Well, they sponsored the uh, the terrorists in uh, in Chechnya. Again, Russians feel very strongly about that. But nonetheless, Putin, who I think sees what the West has done, I mean, Putin still has sought good relations with the West. I mean, you know, it's, it's always there. He's always seeking uh, some some kind of um, uh, rapprochement. Um, so. You know the the way the Western media describe him. Oh, he's um, you know, you know, he's he's very anti-Western, and, that, and as you said, like you brought up, well, he wants to restore the Soviet Union, whatever. He never, never speaks of the West in anything like the terms in which Western policymakers speak about him and they speak about Russia. I mean, sort of the pathological characterizations of Russia. If you just go to um, the State Department website and look up. Anthony Blinken's press briefing from last Friday and the sheer level of malevolent, hate-filled, anti-Russian rhetoric that uh, poured out of the mouth of uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, the top diplomat of the United States. You, no one in Russia ever talks like that about the United States. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't happen. They often refer to our partners or our colleagues. But the whole idea of just describing uh, you know, they, they, some Westerns think it's kind of embodiment of evil, which is how Blinken did it. Uh, it would be just anathema to uh, the Russians. So that's the point. So, so yes, Putin has tried to work with uh, the West, but obviously, I mean, Putin's agenda is to rebuild Russia. 
I mean, I think that his agenda all along was to overcome the, uh, the terrible decade of the 1990s and to make Russia into a serious economic power, um, but also, of course, maintain its military power. But gone was, of course, the, um, the abject, pathetic uh, agenda of uh, Yeltsin when he made Russia into a dependency of the West. 90s Russia was basically just like a shopping mall for oligarchic yeah. capital. Like that that was like not even a country. That was like a shopping mall with like nukes. And yeah. Um, it's actually kind of funny you mentioned about like 9-11 because one country that has been memory hold who offered up their services to help the U.S. put the smack down on Afghanistan, especially the jihadist elements there, was like Iran. Yeah. It's actually hilarious how... That's been like largely memory hold. And they've had a historic beef with um, a lot of like Islamists in Afghanistan. And despite that, like the US came out with that axis of yes. evil speech where Bush lumped Iran yes. with like North Korea and all those other assortment of bad actors. Yes. And then relations like there from there have just totally deteriorated. Yes. But yeah, US foreign policy is pretty nuts. It's all about remaking the world and its dysfunctional yes. image given like the state of the U.S. these days. Yes. Now, I kind of want to shift gears a, a bit to more like domestic politics because I have tuned into the gaggle a lot on Locals and YouTube. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that you do have, apart from your non-interventionist and realist beliefs on foreign policy, that you do have some, dare I say, paleo-conservative beliefs in terms of like policies like immigration and other traditional mm -hmm. values. How would you describe yourself ideologically? Well, that's a very, that's a very good question. I think that um, uh, when it comes to domestic uh, politics, I think um, probably, you know, I have um, fairly uh, conservative views, I think, on, um, on social questions. Um, I think that um, immigration, every country has the right and the responsibility to secure its borders and to protect its people from um, migrants, whether, you know, both legal and illegal, incidentally, because I think, um, I mean, obviously, legal and illegal migrants both uh, drive down pay. They upset the quality of life because suddenly there's a huge burden on public resources that the public, that there just isn't, uh, public resources cannot meet. They uh, take money out of the economy, you know, through sending remittances and uh, and and you know they you know we damage to um, the fabric of life. I mean you know we we know about uh, crime and, uh, and and all the other aspects. So I think it's entirely reasonable for um, governments to uh, protect their people. That that that's the the function of government, and the way you do that is by uh, your borders. One hundred percent. You just make sure that uh, essentially, you know, in in general, I think you know, you know, immigration is a very a difficult business. It's a difficult business for people uh, to go from one country, one continent, one culture to another. It's all you know. The chances of it being successful for the migrants is you know not 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 that great. But it's certainly not uh, great for the um, recipients who never really ask for people to come there 
and then and it becomes a problem for them. And and you know we're seeing you know the manifestations of that in all sorts of ways in in the in the United States where you get so many uh, migrants that uh, you're essentially creating uh, you know like you know almost nations or um, uh, national groups who then start yes, yeah like they start nations. voting as a, a national group interest uh, so therefore uh, you know then you know. That's how states eventually break up, you know, because you you know no longer do you have nations that have common interests because you know you don't really have a nation. You just have uh, you know, a variety of uh, national groups, and they're competing against one another for public resources. So you know, I think in every way, I think it's a an, an, you know an undesirable um, uh, state of affairs. But I mean, when it comes to uh, economic. Um, I think on economics, I don't have, um, uh, I wouldn't say my view was conservative. I'd say I have a social democratic view. I'd say, you know, I, I, I favor uh, uh, a public sector. I think there's not, nothing wrong with um, uh, having an extensive uh, public sector uh, in the economy, uh, gov- government intervention, as long as it is directed at uh, Improving uh, the lives of uh, the, the people, as long as it's not um, uh, directed at um, uh, enriching uh, special interests and uh, and building, I think, dependencies. I mean, I'm, you know, I mean that is, that is a, a a real problem when you start. You know, I, I mean, I do think that when you have a kind of Bernie Sanders view of oh, well, let's let's throw money around on welfare, then I think there is a question of when. How desirable is a society in which you have extensive welfare dependence? Yeah, my views, I think I'm a bit more hands-off on the economics. That said, I do support tariffs yep. and infrastructure spending for areas that have been hollowed out, yes. like the Midwest and the Rust Belt. Yep. Now, on I absolutely enjoyed you saying the stuff about legal and illegal immigration because mm-hmm. I think in a lot of the geopolitics space, People tend to underestimate the geopolitical impacts of immigration via fifth yes. columns. For example, you already see this in Europe with the long arm of yes. Ankara, with how Erdogan um, has weaponized Turkish migrants to basically create micro spheres yes. of influence in Europe and basically change public policy that favors Turkey. And you see this in in the U.S. with Chinese migration. I tell a lot of these China hawks that are still stuck on 20th century geopolitics that the battle isn't really in Taiwan or any of like the contested islands. It's like literally in the corporate boardroom or universities where you're letting Chinese nationals who are a large legal migrant group in the U.S., generally in the top three, basically conduct some of the largest forms of coordinated espionage in, like, U.S. history. And funny enough, you see this all the way from Vancouver down to even Panama, a country that has 5% Chinese population that, oh, yeah, does not recognize Taiwan's independence. It did so in 2017. It only recognizes one China policy. So immigration has very big political impacts that 
people don't recognize and both in terms of like domestic politics and also international politics, because in effect, you were allowing a country to create a de facto forward base in your country. And the Chinese are smart in this respect because they're taking advantage of a U.S. weakness without having to go conventional military routes because they saw the example of the Japanese going the conventional military route and look what happened to them world the end of world war ii pretty much demonstrated that and um i tell a lot of these people from my conservatives and neocons that like if you want to like actually rationally contain china without really firing a shot it makes sense to not only have protectionist economics but also restrict chinese legal migration yeah i i I couldn't agree more and it's uh you, you see it very much in the united states when you have chinese children you know parents are living in china they send their children to the United States. They go to school in the United States. They go to university in the United States. But they clearly, all of their loyalty, all of their focus is China. I mean, that, 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 they're not becoming Americans. I mean, they are the Chinese. They are in the United States learning all of the, uh, you know, obviously mastering English, uh, learning about the, the social system in the United States, learning, you know, business, uh, technical stuff, science. And then when they when they get their uh, corporate jobs in the United States, having attended all of the elite schools, that all their loyalty is to China. I mean, all of this information that they're getting is all for the benefit of China. And uh, why I think it is important, I think you, you highlighted this, is that it is relatively inexpensive for the Chinese to do this. I mean, they, in the sense that they can sway the United States and become, you know, the number one power in the world, which is their ultimate aim, relatively cheaply. You know, they saw what happened to the Soviet Union and how the Soviet Union just spent itself into oblivion because, you know, building missiles and, and <laughs> bombs and, uh, you know, a, a giant aircraft, that is very expensive. You know, you're talking about billions upon billions, but sending your students to Harvard and to Stanford, uh, and then buying up um, all kinds of um, uh, corporate chiefs, you know, buying up you know some some um, lab in in uh, in some uh, in, in massive MIT. That's relatively cheap. I mean, it's it, it still costs money, but in comparison with how much you'd have to spend on a B two bomber, I mean, it's relatively cheap. And I think that's why the Chinese have been very uh, smart. Uh, in the kind of infiltrated uh, the United States, and so much of their uh, America's elite um, is on on the Chinese payroll. That you know they they they're happy to just simply uh, sign away their country to China, and that um, yeah, I mean you know I mean Hunter Biden is just a visible manifestation of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You also see too. Other nationalities have taken advantage of this because the U.S., as I've said for some time, it's a shopping mall with nukes in that you have all these Gulf Arabs and like Israeli interests here also just buying up a ton of property and gaining clout and influence to change U.S. public policy and direct it in a way that, in my opinion, does not serve U.S. interests. Like when you have an open immigration system, you're going to get that. You're going to get people from all over the globe that start pushing their own politics that generally do not jive with the historic American nation. And some people are really not getting this 
lesson that multiculturalism doesn't work and it's going to end in total disaster. But, mm-hmm. oh, well, now I think to close things off, let's talk about like the future of America because it's actually a question now you're beginning to see in a lot of circles that would never have been heard been talked about like in the 90s because we were supposedly in a unipolar moment and the U.S. was going to be the top dog forever. But now we're clearly like in a multipolar order. I'm actually of the view that this multipolarity is somewhat transitory because I think the long-term winds are blowing in a bipolar direction where it will be like U.S. versus China or some permutation of the U.S. versus the Dragon Bear, a.k.a. the joint Russia strategic partnership. Basically, countries will be choosing between the American or the Eurasian bloc. Mm. Now, where do you see the U.S. going in the next few decades, both domestically and in terms of international influence? Right. I think what you, the way you describe the international scene, I, I agree with you, because I think what has happened, um, had, had the U.S. policy, United States pursued a different policy toward Russia, then you could have had a multipolar world. You could have had, uh, you know, U.S., you could have Europe, and then you could have a Russia as a separate entity, China as a separate entity. But now Russia and China both feel so threatened by uh, the U.S.-led West that they've drawn ever closer together. And now they're basically almost one state. I mean, they, you know, they, they, there's just no light, daylight between them. I mean, it's just, um, you know, they, they're in agreement on everything. Uh, you know, they're, you know, they support one another. And, uh, you know, even when uh, they, the, the Russians uh, presented their two draft treaties, uh, they immediately got the support of the Chinese. They said, yeah, yeah, we, we're right behind you. Um, so, you know, if, if there were to be any kind of a conflict between Russia um, and the U.S. and NATO, uh, China would step in in some way to help Russia out, possibly by opening up another front uh, over Taiwan. But the point is that they see their security as indivisible and they're there to help uh, each other out. So, uh, so you've got essentially that very powerful block, the Russia-China block, um, and, and then you have the uh, U.S.-led uh, West. And then, you know, you've got obviously... <clears throat> Your Japan is part of that uh, U.S.-led West. Uh, India, I think, is going to a more interesting case because uh, they they're um, uh, you know they they, they still want to keep in with with the Russians and the Chinese. Uh, but in the in the eventuality of this, you know, Russia and China getting ever closer, you'd have to think that India will probably be drawn toward the West. I mean, they they just they're a little too close to uh, China for comfort. Um, so I think that's that's I think the sort of the, uh, the kind of arc of um, geopolitics in the, in the coming decade. Uh, but domestically, I think that's a, that's an interesting case because you know if, if the United States wants to be the sort of still the great power, you know, they enjoy the hegemony that it enjoyed um, in the heyday of the Cold War. It's going to be very difficult because if you have these divisive uh, leaders and and, and it, well, you know, you know, it's hard to see how the United States can escape essentially from uh, some form of a civil war. It might not actually come to um, physical uh, combat, but it will be in effect a civil war. I mean, just more and more America will be just be divided uh, 
um, by you know red states and blue states. You know, uh, you know, residents of blue states will move uh, into um, uh, red states, uh, and I guess those, those who aren't very sympathetic to red states will just move to blue states. So it'll be a completely divided country. It's going to be hard to see how anyone can unite a country that just doesn't see the world even remotely in the same way. I mean, Trump tried to unite it. I mean, you know, he tried to envisage some kind of a, a great uh, America, a great vision of America, I mean, which he articulated in his um, July the 4th speech, um, Mount Rushmore in 2020. But and I thought it was a very good speech. It's probably Trump, one of Trump's best speeches. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't resonate with, with, the, with the nation because half the nation just hated him so much that they just weren't going to listen to that. So you, it's, it's increasingly hard to um, rally America around the uh, you know, common uh, symbols. So now you've got the Democrats who are kind of, you know, what, what are their, the symbols that they invoke? Well, obviously, January the 6th, January the 6th, uh, Trump impeachment, um, and, and uh, you know, racism, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, all the deplorables, you know, the sexism, the homophobia, the Islamophobia, uh, the vaccine phobia, all of these terrible things um, that, uh, that they're against. Um, but they don't have any kind of a positive vision of, um, you know, what, what is America, what is the greatness of America? You know, you know, it's like beyond a few heroes like, oh, um, uh, Martin Luther King, Congressman John Lewis, and um, Jesse Jackson. Yeah, you know, the new founding fathers. Yeah, the new founding fathers. You know, like, well, what, what is it? You know, you know, all, all the things that once you would define as um, the, uh, the 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 greatness of America. You know, like putting a man on the moon. You know, uh, you know, conquering um, the continent. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, winning winning uh, two world wars. Uh, all, all, all of the sorts of things that uh, you, you say, this this is America, this is what makes America great, that's all gone. And so, you know, it's, it's, so, it's, it's so divided, it's so hard to see how anyone can uh, bring this country together. But of course, if you are divided, it, it, it is very hard to be a great power. I mean, you know, if you look at Russia, Russia doesn't have that problem. I mean, right there, they are have a settled view of themselves and a settled view of their history. I mean, they may argue about this or that aspect of the, the Soviet Union, but they, 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 I think, all accept the, uh, the great features of the Soviet Union, you know, their education, their uh, space program, um, and above all, um, their, their extraordinary victory in World War II they, they, there isn't that kind of, uh, you know, you know, almost pathological hatred for one another, and with each group having its own uh, history uh, to refer to, um, and that's why I think, you know, domestically, I think Russia is in a better state than America because ultimately, America cannot hope to be um, the, the, the great power uh, if if it is so divided. It just it just cannot happen. Oh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I've actually written a new post at the Mises Institute where 
I talk about how like the U.S. does have a legitimacy crisis because when you think about it, you've had two elections, basically 2016 and 2020, yeah. that a large segment of the respective population never treated it as legitimate. The 2016 one was a total farce, obviously, exactly. because of the whole Russia Gate collusion stuff. That's like lunatic stuff. But 2020, I think there were legitimate grievances, regardless from a bird's eye view, because I'm a foreigner too. At the end of the day, I mean, I have U.S. nationality, but I. Yes, I was never born here, but just like looking at it objectively, you do see a legitimacy yes. crisis taking place in the U.S. And as the country's demographics change and just the cultural degeneracy takes root, I think we're going to be in for some rough times. I'm I would not be shocked if the U.S. experiences like a form of cultural collapse yes. uh, within my lifetime. But that's still up in the air. No, I, no, I think that's uh, that that that's in fact right. I think the people who are continually demonized, you know, I think the people who showed up on January the 6th, the people who swear by Donald Trump, I think they know that, um, you know, the the elites hate them. They know that they're despised. And uh, how, you know, what happens when people know that they're hated and they're despised? They hate and despise back. And then you really have a, a very bad situation where, you know, the so much loathing for one another that you know you, you can't you can't do it you can't agree on any uh, on any project you know any common project because it's just uh, you know you, you you basically just don't accept the legitimacy of the other side and incidentally when it comes to these elections i mean all right we're 2016 2020 i am quite sure that you know if the republicans uh, win in 2022 they win in 2024 Half the country will not accept that victory because they'll say, oh, it's because all these uh, terrible Republicans in the state legislatures cook the books, rig the elections, suppress the vote, and or they were helped along by Putin. Um, <laughs> and, and so that's it. It just goes it's now in this vicious cycle that, uh, you know, no one just accepts uh, any election outcome. Yeah, well, the U.S. is definitely in banana republic mode now and i think it's just gonna get a lot crazier and just like stupider when it comes to not just political commentary but also geopolitics i i fully expect them to really just double down with the russia stuff and also like china in fact you're seeing a lot of think pieces now from these geopolitical tinkers talking about trying to like restore nationalism in america by basically Mm -hmm. saber rattling with china or russia or both Mm-hmm. And that's just like peak insanity. But that's where we're at in the U.S. these days. Well, George, I think this is a good place to put a bookmark in this chat. But it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I learned a lot about the Balkan conflict. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. No, no problem. But yeah, where can my listeners stay tuned to your like latest work and other projects? Right, so um, you can look up at thegaggle.locals.com. There you can find me. We always have two uh, number of podcasts a day. You can find me on Substack, just George Samueli at Substack. And um, I also write at RT. You can find me on um, RT. Just look for me there. People are very welcome to uh, purchase my book, Bombs for Peace. NATO's humanitarian war from Yugoslavia. Awesome stuff. Again, thank you, George. Thank you.
To all my listeners, thank you all for your attention. And please subscribe to my Substack, Jose Nino Unfiltered, so you can stay up to date on my latest content. And with that, El Nino has spoken.